Uh, we're continuing our series um, on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting literature, all forms of literature. In particular, biblical hermeneutics is the science of interpreting biblical literature. Throughout this miniature series, we're addressing four hermeneutical principles, four principles of biblical interpretation. Last time, we mentioned the literal principle, meaning we are to first interpret Scripture in a normal, literal sense, meaning at face value, unless there is a definitive reason not to do that. This morning, we're addressing the second principle called the historical principle. This historical principle attempts to recreate the historical context for a particular biblical passage. It is essential we understand something about the historicity of a particular text in order to understand that text. Remember, a biblical text primarily means what it means or what it meant at the time it was written. A biblical text primarily means what it meant at the time it was written. That's the reason the historical principle is so critical to understanding the Bible. To understand historical context, we need to answer some questions. The first question is, who made this happen? Who made this happen? Who was the human author? Who was the text written to? And who were the principal characters in the text if there's a narrative? Second question, what happened? What happened? To determine what happened, read the verses before and read the verses after the verse and or verses in question. That's called context. And the immediate context helps us determine what has happened. Third question, when did this happen? When did this happen? This is where the time factor comes into consideration, and time can be critical to understanding the text. A fourth question, where did this happen? Where did this happen? This necessitates understanding ancient geographical regions. And remember, geography changes over time, and especially over centuries of time. Fifth question, why did this happen? Why did this happen? We need to be curious and inquisitive. It doesn't require an advanced stage of spiritual maturation to be curious. Some of the most thought-provoking questions come from the mouths of spiritual babies. Sam Steele, in our first service, was dressed in a Roman soldier costume during vacation Bible school. He was our... Um, token Roman soldier, and a small girl, maybe first, second grade, uh, in all seriousness, believing he was actually a Roman soldier, approached him and said to him, why did you kill Jesus? That curious question is so complex, it requires a multifaceted answer. Just came from a child. Question six, how did this happen? How did this happen? The same thing applies to this question. Be curious. Be inquisitive. There are numerous resources we can purchase and consult that can help us get the answers to all these questions. Uh, there are Bible dictionaries. 
one of the best-selling dictionaries since its first printing in 1957, uh, is Unger's, U-N-G-E-R, Unger's Bible Dictionary. Merrill Unger was a famous theologian, archaeologist, and author, and I remember as a child seeing him and hearing him speak at my father's graduation from college. Second, there are Bible handbooks. Unger's Bible Handbook and Erdman's Bible Handbook are both excellent resources. Third, there are books on biblical customs. The classic publication on this subject is James Freeman's, that's James Freeman, Manners and Customs of the Bible. Um, It's a classic. It's now in its ninth edition. There was also a famous Jewish historian named Josephus. I often quote Josephus. He commented on biblical customs, and his writings are still available. I have some of them. A fourth resource are Bible commentaries. Commentaries are from theologians that do extensive commentary on entire biblical books from beginning to end. There are three basic categories of commentaries. One are technical commentaries. Technical commentaries concentrate more on the original biblical languages, meaning Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. And because of that emphasis on the languages, most of us, other than Tony, most of us wouldn't benefit so much from reading technical commentaries. Uh, we don't have that background. Second are theological commentaries. Theological commentaries. These commentaries concentrate more on theological and doctrinal content where it exists in a text. The particular theological commentator I use most often is Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, The reason I use him is because he's so consistent in doing careful historical and theological investigation into the text, and he still remains understandable. Um, Not all commentators are so understandable. Dr. MacArthur taught through the entire New Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, throughout a 42-year period. Those sermons were then edited and added to and published as commentaries. Uh, Chris Gray is the blessed recipient. Someone just gave him all 33 volumes of Dr. MacArthur's New Testament commentaries. That's more than a $600 value. I don't even have all 33 volumes, except that now I do because I'm going to go borrow his. Um, But uh, he's very thorough. He spent two entire years and four volumes just in the book of Matthew. Now, if there's an extremely difficult to understand or controversial text, uh, it seems most commentators slide over that, tend to ignore that, because they don't understand it, but not Dr. MacArthur. Most often he addresses the problem passages, and I appreciate that. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean we should agree with all his textual conclusions. I don't. I never have. There's some areas of strong disagreement we have. Uh, We don't have to agree because no matter how intelligent, no matter how educated, no matter how gifted, no theologian is infallible. 
I should add Dr. MacArthur's strength is textual interpretation. He wants to understand what God meant by what God said in that text. His strength is not textual application. Uh, So I don't use him for that reason. Some other excellent commentators are Albert Barnes, Gene Getz, John Phillips, J. Vernon McGee, Ray Stedman, who was Charles Swindoll's personal mentor, and uh, Dr. David Jeremiah has some commentaries. One of my favorites is Warren Wiersbe, uh, a former pastor at famous Moody Church in Chicago, uh, he died in 2019. He authored 150 books. He has excellent, an excellent balance between textual exegesis, uh, determining the meaning of the text, and application. One reason I consult commentaries is because I have to prepare sermons, and good commentators have done extensive historical uh, and theological homework and have saved me hours and hours of research. A number three, there are devotional commentaries. Uh, these commentaries primarily address the practical application of the text. Max Licato is probably a familiar name. He is more of a devotional commentator. He is a prolific author. He's authored some 100 books and has some 130 million copies in print, including some New York Times bestsellers. He is considered this nation's, quote, most inspirational Christian author. And I have used him. He has some excellent, insightful material, but he doesn't consider himself a theological commentator per se, and that's fine, because that's not his gifting. He's doing what he was created to do. On a personal basis, I don't use technical commentaries. I have some. I don't use them often because I'm not that knowledgeable in ancient languages. I primarily use theological commentaries, those that I can understand. I use devotional commentaries some, but not that often for two reasons. One, and this is a generic statement, this is not applicable in all cases, One, because overall, devotional commentaries tend to be more superficial. And second, devotional commentaries are more susceptible to a practice called devotionalism. Now, don't misunderstand. Devotionalism is something altogether different from someone's own private, personal devotions that consist of Bible reading and praying. That's something altogether different. Uh, The Quakers and Puritans often used devotionalism. 18th century commentator Matthew Henry and also John Wesley, founder of Methodism, popularized devotionalism. Notice the definition. Devotionalism tries to relate almost everything in Scripture to the Christian life. Devotionalism tries to relate almost everything in Scripture to the Christian life. And that cannot be done not in a legitimate sense. Devotionalism is still an often used practice. I was exposed to it as a child. Uh, Unfortunately, one of the earliest sermons I ever preached incorporated devotionalism. Um, I started our first congregation, I wasn't even 24 and a half, and we started our first church. Uh, No one in their right mind does that. That's insanity. But I did. I didn't know better. And uh, 
considering how long I've been preaching, I should be much better than I am. Um, not long after starting, I preached a message from 2 Samuel 4. I preached it at our beginning congregation. I also preached it for my father. I preached that message using this practice we shouldn't use called devotionalism. Now, I didn't know it at the time. It was unintentional. Let me summarize that sermon. First, remember there were three successive kings that ruled over the ancient United Nation of Israel. Those kings were Saul. After Saul's death, there was David. And then after David was David's son from Bathsheba, Solomon. Saul, David, and Solomon. There are four basic characters in this particular account from 2 Samuel. The first character is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, and Jonathan was Saul's son, meaning Mephibosheth was also Saul's grandson. At age five, Mephibosheth's nurse carried him in her arms when something happened, and both of them fell, and she fell on top of him. Mephibosheth was injured to the extent that from that moment on, he became a paraplegic, and he was unable to walk. So Mephibosheth was crippled. In that sermon, I said Mephibosheth was a biblical type of mankind because man has been crippled from a fall. The first man, Adam, fell when he committed the first and original sin in the garden. So I said Mephibosheth represents sinful man. The second character is David. David's friendship with Saul's son Jonathan had been so intense and so meaningful that after Jonathan's death in battle, David wanted to find Jonathan's relatives and descendants that were still alive, and he wanted to show them kindness. In that sermon, I said David was a biblical type of God the Father, since God wants to show goodness and kindness to each one of us. So I said, David represents God the Father. The third character is Ziba. Ziba was commissioned from David to find Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was at his uncle's house in Lodabar. David instructed his servant Ziba to journey to Lodabar, find Mephibosheth, and then bring him to David's palace and David's home so David could care for him. In that sermon, I said Ziba was a type of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has been commissioned from God the Father to find us crippled in our sin, bring us salvation, and ultimately bring us to his house in heaven. So I said Ziba represented the Holy Spirit. The fourth character is Jonathan. Remember, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, it was because of his close friendship to Jonathan that David wanted Mephibosheth to become a part of his household. Jonathan is the reason David demonstrated this goodness toward Mephibosheth. In that sermon, I said that Jonathan was a biblical type of Jesus because through his sacrificial death for sin on the cross, he made it possible for God the Father to share his goodness with us. So Jonathan represented Jesus. At the time I preached that sermon, and I just started preaching, at the time I preached that sermon, people, people are nice, you, you know, most of the time, and people told me it was a good sermon. 
No, it wasn't a good sermon. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad sermon because I misrepresented the text. I made the biblical text mean what God never intended it to mean. I misrepresented God because through the means of that sermon, I misrepresented what God had said. It was unintentional. I didn't know better, but that's the same as ministerial malpractice. I have improved since then and matured some. No biblical text reads that Mephibosheth represented sinful man. No biblical text reads that David represented God the Father. No biblical text reads that Ziba represented the Holy Spirit. And no biblical text reads that Jonathan represented Jesus. From the historical principle, if it is applied, we understand that Mephibosheth represented Mephibosheth. David represented David. Ziba represented Zebra. And Jonathan represented Jonathan. These characters that are mentioned in this narrative represented themselves and were not intended to be interpreted as spiritual types. That was an exercise in devotionalism. And that was wrong. Remember this fundamental rule. Nothing in the Old Testament should be considered a spiritual type unless the New Testament repeats it as a type. Nothing in the Old Testament, nothing mentioned there, should be considered a spiritual type unless the New Testament repeats it as a type. If the New Testament doesn't repeat something from the Old Testament as a spiritual type, then it isn't one. Let me mention an example of an actual biblical type from the Old Testament that is repeated in the New Testament. John 3 verse 14. Jesus uh, is speaking and said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, the Son of Man meaning himself, Jesus, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That particular statement Jesus made is a reference to Numbers 21. Uh, according to that account, some poisonous snakes had bitten the ancient Israelites. Some of, uh, of those people died from those snake bites. So to provide a cure for them, uh, God instructed Moses to fabricate a serpent or a snake out of brass and then attach that brazen snake to a pole, lift it high up into the air, uh, position it in the center of the camp where all the people could see that snake and in seeing that snake be cured. In John 3.14, Jesus said that that brazen serpent was lifted high up onto a pole. That serpent was an ancient type of himself because he would also be lifted up from the ground and attached high onto another pole called a cross. Now, some people don't understand that. I have heard this often from well-meaning people. Um, being raised in the church, you hear all sorts of stuff. I've heard this. I've heard people allude to this verse and pray, Father, please help our pastor as he preaches this morning. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, help him to lift up Jesus. Sounds spiritual. But that's wrong. I'm guessing that 
what this person intends to mean is, God, help our pastor to promote Jesus and prioritize Jesus in his preaching. And I agree, we should do that. We should all promote Jesus. We should all prioritize Jesus more often than we do. But this statement from John 3.14 is not talking about promoting Jesus. It's talking about his impending crucifixion. That phrase, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, is a direct historical reference to Jesus being lifted up from the ground, attached to a cross where he would die. That ancient brazen snake was lifted up and attached to a pole in the middle of the camp of Israel, typified, that typified Jesus who would be lifted up and crucified on a cross. In addition, the problem is, if we extend devotionalism just one more step, then we start allegorizing Scripture. And that's an even more serious problem than is devotionalism. An allegory is a narrative could even be a poem, that can be interpreted to reveal a secret or hidden meaning. Uh, there are different, last time we mentioned, there are different allegories in Scripture. For instance, uh, the section on the vine and the branches, a famous section from John 15, is essentially a biblical allegory. Those parables Jesus told are allegories. Um, the problem is not allegories. The problem is a practice called allegorizing. Notice the definition. Allegorizing scripture is an attempt to find some meaning in a text, some hidden meaning, some secret meaning in a text, in addition to the literal historical sense of the text. The church father Origen from third century Alexander, Alexandria, Egypt, used Greek philosophical ideas in an attempt to discover those additional hidden meanings. Origen said this, listen carefully. The scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. I don't know if I've ever heard of a more heretical statement than that about a biblical text. The scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. No, Origen, you're mistaken. The scriptures are of no use to those who don't understand them as they are written. Origen said that scripture was just one massive allegory where each detail in each text is symbolic. That is a terrible hermeneutic. And because of his extreme allegorization, Origen is considered, according to conservative evangelical theologians, considered an ancient heretic. On the note sheet, there's an example of someone's more extreme allegorical interpretation. The text is found in Genesis 11, verse 31. Let me read that. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, where they came to Haran and dwelt there. That is the text. Now the allegorized rend rendering of that passage sounds like this. Abram's trek to Palestine is actually the story of a Stoic philosopher that left Ur of the Chaldeans, 
Ur represents sexual understanding, and then stops at Haran. Haran means the human senses. And once Abram's name was changed to Abraham, he became an enlightened philosopher. And for him to marry Sarah was to marry abstract wisdom. Question. How did someone get all that craziness out of that text? That's insane. The problem in allegorizing a text is that it, it is so subjective. Its meaning is different according to who's doing the allegorizing. It's a huge free-for-all. Someone can read a text and argue to me it symbolizes this. Someone else can read the same text and argue, no, to me it symbolizes this. And who is right and who isn't right? No one knows because allegorizing is so subjective. That's the reason Protestant reformer Martin Luther rejected the allegorical method of interpreting Scripture. He called it, quote, dirt, scum, and obsolete loose rags. I don't think he liked it. This historical principle, if applied, is beneficial in part because it prevents us from allegorizing the text. It helps us get at what did God mean by what God said in that text. Now, it is possible to abuse this historical principle. Most everything can be abused if it's taken to an extreme. Some people take this historical principle to an extreme degree and start to culturalize a text. Notice the definition. Culturalization is the practice of limiting the application of a text to a particular time period or to a particular culture when there is no reason to do that. Culturalization is the practice of limiting the application of a particular text to a particular time period, most often in the past, or to a particular culture, most often in the past, when there was no reason to do that. Culturalization means, after reading a text, that was for them back then, but it isn't for us now. Now, don't misunderstand. Sometimes that is true. Sometimes it is for them back then, and it isn't for us now, as we're going to demonstrate in a moment. But sometimes that isn't true. So that we can avoid culturalizing a text, we should ask two basic questions. Question one, are there any time indicators in the immediate text that would limit the text to a particular time period? Are there time indicators in that text that would limit that text to a particular time period, thus meaning it is not relevant to us now? I remember seeing a, quote, Christian feminist being interviewed on the 700 Club. Um, the word feminist and feminism has evolved over time. There's feminism that advocated for equal rights for women as during the suffrage movement. And that form of feminism is biblical and good and acceptable. But modern feminism is more radical and moves past that. Modern feminism, as we are seeing now, encourages and celebrates abortion on demand. 
Did you know there is now even a, quote, National Abortion Provider Appreciation Day? Abortion providers are called heroes. Modern feminists are at this moment hyperventilating after Friday's Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. These feminists are screaming and now want to pack the Supreme Court or get rid of that court altogether. That's modern hyperfeminism. Hyperfeminism rejects the domestic headship of the man. These women hate the patriarchy. Modern feminism promotes lesbianism and wants to eliminate the nuclear family. The nuclear family is defined as a married man and woman raising dependent children as a basic societal unit. Some radical feminists want to eliminate marriage altogether. Although this woman being interviewed wasn't that radical, she doesn't fit that profile, throughout that entire interview, this Christian feminist culturalized the different biblical passages that comment on the societal roles of men and women. As an example, in the middle of one of Paul's discussions on biblical roles for men and women in the church, she completely ignored a textual time indicator. That textual time indicator is found in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13. For Adam was first form, then Eve. For Adam was first form, then Eve. That means in that text, the particular parameters Paul established for men and women in the congregation were based on the order of creation, man first and then woman. Those parameters Paul cited there became transcultural and became transgenerational principles because those principles originated from the first man and woman. And that means those gender principles are still relevant for us now. And one of the problems is that culturalizing is sometimes an attempt from those that have a liberal bias. And if you aren't aware, there is now a movement of, quote, progressive Christians. People who call themselves Christians but adopt the ideologies of the left. These progressive Christians are pro-LGBTQ Pride Month. These people are pro-choice, abortion people. And one of the problems is that culturalizing a text is sometimes an attempt from one of these progressive Christians to make Scripture conform to contemporary thought and make Scripture conform to modern culture instead of making contemporary thought and modern culture conform to Scripture. I personally question sincerity or salvation of those, quote, progressive Christians. Uh, Second question, are there any theological limitations that would limit the text to a particular time period? Are there theological limitations found primarily in the New Testament that would limit the text to a particular time period? And sometimes there are. I mentioned Dr. MacArthur earlier. He once asked another pastor, I won't mention this man's name. He's still alive. He is a, a recognizable name in evangelicalism, and he's a good man. Um, Dr. MacArthur and him were having a conversation, and he asked 
him this probing question. He said, just how do you determine in Scripture what is for us now and what isn't for us now? And this man responded, I don't. I just take everything in Scripture for everyone. John was stunned and said, you just take everything in Scripture for everyone? He said, yes, I do. John responded, if you believe everything in Scripture is for everyone, then how often do you sacrifice a lamb? He didn't have a response. The point is, all Scripture was written for us. And all Scripture was written for our benefit. But not all Scripture was written to us. If everything in Scripture is for everyone at any point in time, then the following statements are also true. Since the Old Testament patriarchs had polygamous marriages, then so should we. Until 1890, the Mormon church practiced that. Mormonism's founder was Joseph Smith. He was married to 40 women. Some of them were still married to a man at the time he married them. He married some mothers and daughters, and he married one teenager age 14. He's a, he was a polygamist. His successor, Brigham Young, married 56 women. But the U.S. government wouldn't permit Utah to be admitted into the Union until the LDS Church renounced that practice, and that happened in 1890. Another statement. Since the Old Testament sanctioned the death of witches, then we should also execute witches and warlocks. Another statement. Since in the Old Testament times, some plagues were sent from God for the ultimate good of the people, then we should avoid... <coughs> We should avoid sanitation because sanitation could forfeit God's purposes if he were to send another plague. Excuse me. Another statement. <clears throat> Since the Old Testament assigns pain and suffering to women in childbirth, then modern women shouldn't be permitted anesthesia in labor. That is probably not going to go over. Another statement, since Old Testament tithing totaled 23 and one-third percent of someone's income, and it constituted a law for the Israelites, then that same exact percentage, 23 and one-third percent of giving, should also be required from us. But people, none of these things I just read are true. None of them. And the reason is because New Testament theology limits those practices to the Old Testament and primarily to the ancient nation of Israel. And that nation existed as a theocracy. There is no theocracy at this moment on this earth. So if there aren't time limitations in a text, and if there aren't theolog theological limitations then don't culturalize the passage. Don't miss this principle. As a general rule, a text should be interpreted to be ap applicable in the broadest time sense possible. As a general rule, a text should be interpreted to be applicable in the broadest time sense possible. Now, if we use the information we 
can derive from those resources I mentioned earlier, then we can reconstruct the historical context for most all biblical passages. And if we do that, then sometimes the passage almost interprets itself. It just falls out in front of us. One example is Matthew 5, verse 39. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He said, But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. On the surface, just reading that, it seems that Jesus said we are to permit someone to take advantage of us. We are to permit someone to hurt us in some sense. Some Christian pacifists and those that support non-resistance use this verse to argue against defending ourselves. Let me make two statements about this particular verse. One, Jesus himself did not, did not literally turn the cheek in all situations. After his arrest, this is found in John 18, and before his crucifixion, one of the Sanhedrin members, remember the Sanhedrin was the highest court in ancient Israel. And one of those members struck Jesus in the face, punched him or slapped him in the face. And Jesus immediately called him into question. He didn't turn the other cheek. Second, Jesus actually encouraged self-defense. Jesus encouraged defending ourselves and defending others. Before his crucifixion, Jesus warned his disciples that there would be severe imminent persecution. He encouraged them to sell their outer garments and use those monies from the sale of those clothes to purchase a sword. The actual Greek word translated as sword in his instructions meant a dagger or a short sword that belonged to the traveler's basic equipment as protection against robbers and wild animals. That means Jesus instructed his disciples to purchase the means to defend themselves. In our more modern vernacular, Jesus would have said, hey, go to the gun shop. I have an entire message, November 5th, 2017, right after the massacre in Las Vegas, an entire message on the biblical case for using lethal force in defense of ourselves and others. And if you've never heard that sermon, um, I encourage you to listen to it. It's my gun sermon. And uh, I worked hard on that one. I am a second amendment person, if there's any question. Theologians J.P. Moreland and Norman Geisler, now in heaven, have said that, quote, to permit murder when one could have prevented it is morally wrong. To allow a rape when one could have hindered it is an evil. To watch an act of cruelty to children without trying to intervene is morally inexcusable. And I read that and I think of Uvalde, Texas, and how those children were in there for almost an hour being massacred. In brief, 
these men said. Not resisting evil is an evil of omission. And an evil of omission can be just as evil as an evil of commission. Any man that refuses to protect his wife and children against a violent intruder has failed them morally. Self-defense is a legitimate reaction to someone's aggressive and threatening, dangerous behavior against us. One more time, Matthew 5, 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. And then what does this next statement mean? But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. It's interesting that Jesus mentioned someone being struck on the right side of the face and not on the left side. At the most recent Academy Awards, which I don't recommend watching ever, comedian and MC Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's shaved head. Comedians do, they, they make fun of people. Um, Jada's husband, famous actor Will Smith, sat there, smiled, and seemed amused at that joke at first, and then turned and noticed she wasn't amused. So in a pretentious attempt to defend Jada, he got up out of his seat, stepped onto the stage, and slapped Chris Rock. He slapped him hard on the left side of the face. He should have been arrested for assault, but he wasn't. Instead, sometime after that, he received an award and a standing ovation, such as Hollywood. But he slapped Chris Rock on the left side of the face because that is the normal side of the face. If you're right-handed facing someone, that's the normal side of the face that you would hit someone if you intended to do that. Um, I don't recommend that. Uh, The point is, right-handed people slap someone on the left side of the face as per that incident. But Jesus mentioned someone being slapped on the right side of the face. Now, most people are right-handed. How many in this room are left-handed? Raise your hand. Oh, there are some. Good. Someone said that left-handed people are the only people in their right mind. I don't know if that's true or not. Between 88 and 90% of us are right-handed. So in order for a right-handed person to slap someone he is facing on the right cheek, in order to do that, he has to backhand that person across the face. That's the only possible means of doing that. If we're facing someone and we want to slap him on the right cheek, we have to backhand him across the face. And don't do that. It's not nice. Don't don't even think about it. Using this historical principle, though, biblical historians believe that this particular phrase, being slapped on the right cheek, was an ancient Hebrew idiom that described the consummate societal insult. It would be an insult if you were to strike someone on the right side of the face. That insult would have been similar to someone being challenged to a duel at the time of King Arthur using a backhand slap to the right cheek of his opponent. So Jesus was describing a personal insult, just as in modern times, spitting into someone's face would be considered a horrific insult. 
Jesus wasn't describing an act from someone that intended to inflict actual serious bodily harm. He was referring to insults, to being slandered, to being intimidated, to being made fun of, which in and of themselves, those insults don't endanger us. Don't miss this. To turn the other cheek means that if someone has insulted us, someone has abused us in a verbal sense, we are not to retaliate and insult them in return. Listen to journalist Sidney J. Harris. This is a profound quotation. When we get even with someone, that is literally what we are doing. Because even with them, that is, we are descending to their level in vengeance and losing whatever moral advantage we might have had. When we get even with someone, that is literally what we are doing, because even with them, that is, we are descending to their level in vengeance and losing whatever moral advantage we might have had. Um, on Friday, closing ceremonies of EBS, uh, the penny parade, the girls won as per usual because they cheat, and the boys lost. So that meant the girls got to select two, two, two boys that they could throw pies in their face. And uh, one was uh, Michael Hansen, and one was Sam Steele, and they got a big pie in the face. Now somehow, I'm a non-participant, okay? And I'm in my office, and my daughter-in-law was here, and she had a pie, okay? And she comes and holds it just like this in front of me. And I'm going, no, don't do it. You'll regret it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just like this. The next thing I know, Christy Roney was behind her and slammed it into my face. <laughs> it's actually, in a technical sense, considered a war crime because I'm a non-combatant. Shouldn't have happened. I didn't do anything to deserve that. I had a little left Barbara sitting here, so I just smacked it in her face. She didn't appreciate that either. So someone said, are you going to get her back? And I'm working on this sermon. I'm going, I want to, but I can't. So I haven't, and I won't. I'm restraining myself. Now let me expand on that. Not only are we not to retaliate, but we are to do good to those that insult us and harass us and intimidate us. Notice Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. This is another example, an example of a, a, a biblical text that if we do the historical investigation, it's going to just fall open in front of us. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. This phrase means if we're wronged, don't retaliate against someone. Retaliation reminds me of a truck driver that dropped in at an all-night truck stop in a small place called Broken Bow, Nebraska. Now, I heard of Broken Bow, Oklahoma. There is a small town called Broken Bow, Nebraska. And the wait, res, restaurant waitress at this all-night truck stop had just served him. And he just sat down to eat his meal. And then three obnoxious, leather-jacketed motorcyclists, reminiscent of the Hells Angels, entered the restaurant. Glanced around the room. I found this man, this trucker, strolled up to him, apparently wanting to solicit a fight. 
One of them grabbed the hamburger off his plate and started eating it. Another took his french fries. And then the third picked up his coffee and started to drink it. This trucker just sat there. He didn't respond as someone might expect him to. Instead, his meals had been confiscated. So he said nothing, got up from his seat, picked up his check, walked to the front, put the check and his money on the counter, and then went out the door. The waitress followed him in order to, you know, retrieve the money and place the money in the cash register. And then she stood there momentarily watching out the door as the big truck drove off into the night. As she returned to her position serving different customers, one of the motorcyclists uh, said to her, Hey, uh, he, didn't put up, he didn't put up a fight at all. I guess he wasn't much of a man, was he? She said, Sir, I can't answer that. But for sure he's not much of a truck driver. He just ran over three motorcycles getting out of the parking lot. <laughs> Although my sin nature thinks that's awesome, that's just awesome. <laughs> Biblically, that's not what we're supposed to do. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I, I will replay, says the Lord. Verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Notice, please, these instructions are addressed to individual persons. These instructions are not addressed to human governments and nations. On a personal basis, I am opposed to giving financial aid to those foreign, corrupt, totalitarian governments. That, if possible, would literally stamp us out of existence. I am for giving aid uh, to those innocents that are there in those authoritative countries, if the aid can get to the people. Uh, but these instructions are to individuals. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And why should we do that? Notice, for in so doing, you will reap, heap coals of fire on his head. Notice that phrase, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Question, what do we do if someone wrongs us, someone offends us, someone slanders us? Someone manipulates us, deceives us. According to this verse, our response is not to retaliate, but we are to do good to them. If someone does evil to us, then we should refuse to retaliate in doing evil to them, and instead we should do good to them. Meaning, if this person is hungry, then feed them. If this person is thirsty, then give him something to drink because in doing good to them we are actually heaping coals of fire onto their heads. This is an interesting phrase. Now it is apparent, should be, that heaping coals of fire onto their head doesn't actually mean dumping a Weber barbecue grill full of hot charcoal onto someone's head. It doesn't mean that. So some people see this as, if someone has offended me, someone has insulted me, um, someone has wronged me, then I am to do good to them, and do good to them, 
and do good to them and continue doing good to them. And in doing that, it is equivalent to dumping hot coals onto their head because it's burning them with shame. And now this person is going to feel terrible for what he did to me. Now, that might be a result. But if that's what this phrase, if that's the intent, if that's what this phrase, heaping coals of fire onto their head means, then that would be another form of retaliation. Because you're inflicting them with guilt. And then that would contradict verse 19 that reads that we are not to retaliate. If we do some historical investigation, we learn that in the ancient Middle East, people had numerous clay pots. And there would be at least one large clay pot where hot burning coals would be kept inside that pot. If those burning coals were to extinguish themselves, then those now cold coals would be tossed out and then someone from that household would take that empty pot to a neighbor and ask that neighbor if he or she could spare some hot burning coals. If that neighbor was a good neighbor, he wouldn't give his neighbor in need just a small handful of coals, but in being generous to his neighbor in need, he would fill up that pot and he would heap the coals up until the pot almost overflowed with burning coals. He would literally give his neighbor a heaping pot full of hot burning coals. But there's more. Remember that people in ancient societies often carried items, sometimes heavy items, on their heads. It still happens in some cultures now. That means if a neighbor was generous, then he would put a heaped up pot full of hot burning coals, he would set that pot onto someone's head, and carrying that pot on their head, this person would then go home. Does that make more sense now? The intent of these verses is that if someone offends us, insults us, deceives us, then we are to do good to them. We are to overdo good to them. The motive in doing that isn't to cause that person to feel guilty and ashamed about what he did to us. No, but it's because doing good toward them and overdoing good toward them is how God expects us as a Christian to react to them. That's the meaning of heaping coals of fire onto someone's head. And the reason we know that is because we applied the historical principle to that text. Let me close before the children come in uh, uh, sharing a graphic example of someone's non-retaliatory nature and then his doing good to someone who had wronged him to an unimaginable degree. This is from the Korean War. The communists had arrested a South Korean Christian. Probably most people know the largest percentage of evangelicals of any nation are in South Korea. He was arrested. He was ordered to be executed. But when the young communist commander responsible for this prisoner learned that this man was in charge of an orphanage caring for small children, he decided to spare his life. But he decided to execute his son instead. He had his men bring out his teenage son and then had him executed in front of his father. 
During the course of time, the fortunes of war changed, and that same communist commander was captured by UN forces. He was tried and then condemned to death for his war crimes. But before the sentence could be carried out, this South Korean man, the man that managed that orphanage, this man whose son had been executed, came to the authorities and he begged for the life of his son's executioner. He insisted that this now convicted former communist commander had been so immature and impressionable that he didn't fully understand the seriousness of what he was doing at the time he committed these heinous crimes. This Christian man that managed an orphanage said, please give him to me. Assign him to me and I will teach him to become a profitable member of society. The UN authorities actually granted this request. And this man took the murderer of his own son into his own home and cared for him. In just a matter of months, this Christian's non-retaliation and forgiving nature so impacted this former commander that he renounced communism and he gave himself to Jesus. He became a Christian. But that wasn't the end. This former communist that had committed murder in cold blood, ultimately pastored a South Korean Christian church. And it was because this man had heaped hot coals of fire onto his head. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for what we've learned. I hope it makes a difference in each of us. The Bible is the most sacred of books. I've said often it is the most used book and the most misused book. I pray that the instructions we share will help us never, ever to misuse your word and uh, to rightly divide it so that we understand exactly what you want us to know. Again, thank you for your goodness and patience with us, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.